This is Prayer Room Companion, episode 21 for September 8, 2010. Faith and Reason, the Two Wings of the Human Spirit. Welcome to Prayer Room Companion. I am your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald. With me as always, Father Andrew Dickinson. How are you this week, Father? I'm excellent, though a little frosty cold up here in Brookings. Yes, it's, uh, well, it's not, I guess, not officially fall, but the unofficial start of, well, fall has unofficially begun, I think, at least here in South Dakota with uh, the onset of cool weather, if nothing else. Um, so. so, Father and I thought that, sort of flowing from last week's conversation, uh, maybe another topic related to that, things that we hear a lot, maybe things that the, uh, the atheists, agnostics, and secularists might be talking about in their... Um, booth across from fathers last week uh so to speak is the the relationship or lack thereof according to some between faith and reason and and this is in the news in a particular way uh recently because the noted astrophysicist uh brilliant mind um stephen hawking uh, just recently came out with a new book in which uh he um asserts among other things um that that we can know that um, God did not create the universe. The universe came into being because, uh, well, it gets a little bit muddy. He talks about gravity. Father, you, you got further in your science studies than I did. You want to summarize what Professor Hawking said? Well, I don't know if I can summarize it accurately, but uh, the, uh, I'm trying to find the, uh, the proper quote on it. Um, he says, uh, um, oop, that's not the proper quote. He's talking basically trying to find a materialistic way to show the origins of the universe, that there doesn't have to necessarily be a, uh, someone acting outside of time and space to create this material world, just wants a, a source right in there. Because that's one of the big problems with, uh, if you will, the, the Big Bang. Uh, well, it's maybe not a big problem with the Big Bang. Uh, but it is a, a problem nonetheless by saying that in some ways, how did the Big Bang begin? Uh, in fact, and people sometimes forget this, that the Big Bang was originally uh, uh, thought of as a um, uh, way to, um, to explain creation, a way to explain uh, creation. So um, in his book, The Grand Design, uh, that uh, Stephen Hawking's uh, published together with a, with a co-author, um, you know, he says that we can, use, we can look to gravity and the law of gravity as a way to explain uh, the world began. I'm not quite clear on how Stephen Hawking goes about with that explanation because, I mean, some immediate questions come into my mind and how he's saying that. Right. But when he talks about gravity, he's talking about um, – not just in the sense of uh, I drop something, you know, on the table. He's talking about uh, gravity in the sense of the one of the four nuclear forces, one of the four internal forces of an atom. There is strong force, weak force, gravity, and the electromagnetic force, right. which are all working out uh, in, in different ways um, with each other to balance out an atom and allow creation to exist. Uh, the question that would come to my mind uh, in his argument for using gravity is, seems to me that gravity would in some way imply matter. Uh, and so I don't think gravity is, I don't know how he's using gravity to then introduce matter into the universe. 
Right. You can't, if, if there is no matter, then how can there be gravity? Uh, if Father Robert Barron uh, makes some astute points, he expresses uh, his mild frustration that once again you have um, a physicist um, attempting to do metaphysics. And unfortunately, all too often, phys- physicists don't do metaphysics very well. And the point being that really this whole, this is a question that pertains to the philosophical area of metaphysics, which we don't want to get too far afield here. Um, so maybe that would be a good topic for another podcast. Um, but, but there are some basic philosophical errors um, that Stephen Hawking is making in this case. Among them, he, he's, he's, he's failing to recognize that he is no longer really discussing physics. He is moving into metaphysics, and insofar as he refers to God, he's moving into theology. And as Father Barron says, um, Stephen Hawking really doesn't know much more about philosophy or theology than does your typical college freshman. Well, and uh, again, I, I think... Uh, Father Barron not being unfair in that analysis, because we have to remember that Stephen Hawking is using a material world to explain away the possibility of any existence of an immaterial God, right? which just seems kind of odd. Right. It's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's trying to say, well, it, it's just mixing two areas that, uh, well, he's confusing two areas. He's, he's failing to distinguish between them, I think, is, is another way to put the problem. It's an intellectual sloppiness, which we could reasonably expect from a college freshman, but it is a little puzzling when it's found in a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Absolutely. So there's this whole discussion about about Professor Hawking, Stephen Hawking, and uh, going on these days. And uh, Father and I were already thinking about doing this topic, but it seemed especially apropos given given this latest discussion with the publication of Hawking's book. Uh, so So... Talking about faith and reason, um, really, as Father and I were, were preparing this podcast, uh, Father made the, the, the astute point that really what, faith and reason are, are two different things, but they both have the same end, which is they both desire to gain knowledge. Faith and reason are two ways of knowing. Uh, and, and, and if we look at faith... Um, we see that that's certainly the case, and, and faith, not just in a theological sense, but in an everyday sense, um, when we are uh, w- when we are learning, um, whether it's high school, elementary school, junior high, certainly in college, we are we generally speaking, we take what the professor says as true on face value because the professor is saying it. We trust in the authority of the one who is providing us the knowledge. I certainly did not in college have the wherewithal to go out and personally validate and demonstrate to my own satisfaction the truth of every single assertion that my professors made. Um, I simply presumed, um, I took for granted, I had faith in them, I trusted that what they were saying was true, and I learned in that way from them. Um, any other examples, Father, of that, of, of, along these lines? Well, I just think, uh, you know, think of something as simple as a children's globe, right? A children's globe, a child's globe, you know, with the outline of the continents. I haven't mapped, you know, the continents. Uh, I haven't seen the physical evidence for myself that Norway has fjords, right? That uh, Greenland really isn't green, uh, you know, but I take it on. I take it on trust. I have to take it on trust that 
that that information is correct. So there is, in that sense, um, that faith or that implied uh, trust or truth to what to what I'm being told. And we, when we learn that way, we believe that it's we believe it's true. We're, we're certain we're certain about the truth of these propositions that we receive uh, from others. Um, we have certitude about them, um, and that's not irrational. It's not unreasonable for a college student to believe what their professors say. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we're called to be blind, and we'll get into this more as well. Neither is we as Catholics don't and blindly believe without applying our intellects. What it means is that we, generally speaking, um, wh- when there's an authority figure speaking on a topic in which they, are, they have been established as an expert, we trust that what they say is true. Even though we might be critical in the proper sense, we might ponder, it, may ask questions, challenging questions even. Generally speaking, we take what they say is true um, we are we have certitude about the truth of what they say, and it is it is reasonable to do so. You can also think about this in the sense of legal testimony. Uh, you know, the, an eyewitness testimony is still very powerful in a court of law, despite a CSI and uh, uh, other TV shows like that and their efforts to maybe try and uh, undermine the notion of eyewitness testimony. But eyewitness testimony is still very powerful, and you're. You're trusting someone else's account, uh, providing you even certain situations with legal certitude. Right. It's enough certitude to potentially send someone to death, and, and at least uh, in those places that sell the death penalty, certainly life in prison. I mean, where the, that, that, um, the jury uh, certainly does not have personal experience of the things that the witness is testifying to, and yet obviously in in every case uh well in every case where somebody's found innocent or guilty um it is on the basis of that person it's it's their confidence their trust their faith in that witness that the jury uh at least is helped towards finding their verdict right and just because certitude sometimes just because someone occasionally gives false testimony doesn't mean that you start to disbelieve all witnesses Correct. Just, uh, and also the difference between a, a deceitful testimony and an erroneous testimony, where one time where the witness is just simply wrong, in error, makes a mistake, and the other time where the witness intends to deceive, is deliberately telling falsehood for the sake of deceiving those who might trust them. And certainly, there have been people who have been found guilty of perjury. They've, we've, we know that they have lied on the stand, and yet, as you note, um, that has not invalidated the notion of eyewitness testimony in the courtroom. Exactly. So, so faith, I mean, in a broad sense, faith is simply taking, believing something because someone else says it. Um, it's as opposed to experiencing it or validating demonstrating it ourselves personally uh and that's true in the both the 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 everyday sense the mundane sense but also in the theological sense the the theological virtue of faith is that we believe what god god has revealed to us because he has revealed it to us uh he is the ultimate authority figure so to speak um and we have absolute confidence and certitude in those things which he has revealed to us and it's not just simply on a matter of the authority of God. And I believe it's uh, Joseph Pieper in his book on uh, Faith, Hope, and Love, and his book on the Theological Virtues, where he'll draw out this point where he says that it's also because the one testifying is found to be trustworthy. 
right. found to be trustworthy. And so, uh, you know, Christian revelation proves itself trustworthy by how it leads to goodness of life. Uh, Jesus Christ's own testimony to uh, the Father and the Father's desires is found to be trustworthy because of how it leads to to happiness, to beatitude, to blessedness. And so and these sorts of things also come into play with that, uh, with the trust of faith. And also, those are referred to sometimes as the, the how it's the, the internal evidence, the external evidence as well with miracles and so on, which that also might be an interesting podcast down the road, um, the various miracles that have happened throughout history and continue to happen. But but in any case, so so faith is we, we have that certitude. <coughs> excuse me, because uh, we because of the trustworthiness of God, um, as well in a sense as His um, authority. So from that, then, um, if we look at the history, certainly at least of of the church, the history of Christianity, we see that there's always been a relationship, a positive relationship between faith and reason. Um, one thing we ought not uh, neglect to mention in, in this context is John Paul II's encyclical letter, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, which he wrote in the late, mid-90s, I believe it was 1995, um, in which he um, elaborated upon the Catholic understanding of faith and reason and the relationship between the two. And in that, in that encyclical letter, which you can find online for free at the Vatican website, um, as well as other places, um, in that encyclical letter, he discusses the history of the relationship between faith and reason and how from the very beginning, um, well, certainly there have been throughout history those who have denied that faith and reason collaborate, that they both are, are paths to knowledge, um, that the, the 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 consensus has certainly been that they are in fact partners. Uh, the image that John Paul II uses at the very opening of that encyclical is faith and reason are two wings of a dove. Uh, the, the dove being the human spirit as it soars towards God, uh, rises towards God, towards the knowledge of He who is ultimate truth. But also, just as as um, as we desire to know maybe reality in a general sense, we employ both faith and reason. Well, I, uh, the image of uh, that he starts with that way, uh, directly reading from uh, Fides et Ratio, faith and reason are two wings in which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth. And God has placed in the human art a desire to know truth, in a word, to know himself. So by knowing and loving God, men and women may also come to the fullness of truth about themselves. Uh, a couple of interesting echoes to think about in that sense, that God permits himself to be known in that natural world what, through what we might call reason. That God permits himself to be known in that way. God permits himself to be known through uh, the study of the atom. God permits himself to be known through the study of the cell. God permits himself to be known through uh, not just research science, but applied sciences. God permits himself to be known in sociology and engineering. Uh, in uh, in all sorts of uh, different avenues in this way, because he desire, because he has placed that desire in our hearts to know him, so he's true to that desire. There, along those lines, a number of um, scholars have commented, and really the, the professional scholars who study science and the history of science have been noting for decades now that uh, modern science arose specifically because of Judeo-Christianity. 
that is that, that Christianity and Western civilization laid the intellectual foundation necessary for modern science to arise. You referred to the Big Bang earlier. Um, the Big Bang, as a theory, was first proposed by a Belgian priest who was a physicist. Uh, the, the, the mainline opinion prior to then was that the universe had simply always existed. But it was a Catholic priest who was the first to articulate this theory of the Big Bang. Um, uh, Mendel. Something else good from Belgium besides their office. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Georg Mendel, George Mendel, um, was a monk, he, the father of modern genetics. On and on and on. You could go on uh, so many ways. But what I was reminded of that, Father, when you were speaking about um, how... God reveals himself to us in all of these different ways. And that's, that, that's certainly what motivated the, 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 the many of the early fathers of modern science who themselves were believers. Whether they were, they were clerics or laymen, they, they sought to know, come to know God's creation and through it to come to know God himself. And so we have today, though, this antagonism that in some way you can't uh, believe in God or it's hard to believe in God at the same time with all sorts, with all the scientific revelations, with all the scientific discoveries, maybe I should say, with all the preponderance of scientific evidence of things in this world. How could you still allow yourself to rely on trusting when you could uh, verify, when you could know, when you could see, when you could investigate with your own hands? Why limit yourself to the human realm of knowing through faith? Right, and it, 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 I think we, you and I talked briefly, I think that goes back in many ways to the Enlightenment, maybe even further back, but more, uh, in a, more contemporaneous, no, 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 more modernly, to make up an adverb, um, in the 20th century. More recently? More recently, that would be a better word yet, um, and a real one. Um, <laughs> more recently, things like the Scopes trial. Exactly, which... Uh, now, I'm not uh, very familiar, I'm just kind of cursory familiar with, with it, but uh, which was uh, in Tennessee in, I believe, the 1920s, uh, where uh, we had uh, someone who was wanting to teach, uh, it was basically pitting evolution versus creationism with a fundamentalist uh, Christian uh, talking about uh, uh, creation. All right. And uh, a, law, a lawyer who was arguing uh, that, no, we have to teach evolution in schools and opposing those two realities against each other, that they're mutually exclusive, that they can't be thought of in the same breath. Right. And, 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 and in many ways, of course, from a Catholic perspective, we don't have a dog in this fight because we are certainly open to the possibility. We, when, when we look at Genesis, we under, understand Genesis uh, as, as a particular type of genre, and in, in our reading of it, um, it's, it's, it's per perfectly possible um, that evolution is, in fact, true. Whereas the Scopes trial, you had this... Uh, these two um, opposed sides that one saying that um, Genesis doesn't allow for the possibility of evolution, the other saying that, well, we know evolution, evolution is true. From a Catholic perspective, well, it, Genesis is true, but evolution could also be true and they wouldn't contradict one another. Uh, but, but I think that is just, the, we're seeing this as the sort of the historical repercussions, ramifications, at least one particular manifestation of them, of this divorce, this divide um, between faith and reason that began centuries before. And the curious thing to me is uh, that as, as, 
and in the in the minds at least of of modern philosophy and so on in the last several centuries as faith and reason have gone along divergent paths um reason has been weakened uh, many commentators noted that when john paul ii wrote fides et ratio to they you had the to some curious fact that here was the pope of all people saying that reason has the ability to know the truth to know reality when in in certain avant-garde philosophical circles those who are familiar with postmodernism and so on would know this um many philosophers are saying that in fact the human intellect the human mind reason human reason cannot know truth that that it is impossible to come to knowledge of truth uh so it's it, it is sort of one of those interesting things that it's it's the the leader of the catholic church uh for some people the very epitome of of superstition and irrationality who is saying that no the human intellect the human mind the human reason can know truth can arrive at at certitude about the nature of reality and maybe a a popular way that you might see what uh Dr. Bergwell is talking about there is we now have people referring to my truth and your truth. Right. Uh, and largely pretty much in the, I think you call it the uh, social or the moral realm, but uh, that it's even kind of can creep into uh, areas of more quote unquote hard fact, a more scientific fact, where people doubt whether or not my observable truth uh, can be the same as your observable truth, or by the very fact that we're two different observers that it violates any uh, similarity between the two observations. And so this is precisely what Pope John Paul II was arguing against, saying, yes, you, you can believe your own eyes. Right. You can believe uh, the things that you see before you. Uh, and other people can believe it too, and there can be that commonality. Because uh, that's one of the biggest things that, lo- that, that's, that gets lost in this is the ability to have commonality, to have discussion. Otherwise, we become utterly isolated from one another. If I might have my truth about uh, something, and you've got your truth about something, and there is no hope of reconciliation, of, re- of uh, reconciling, of coming to the same basis uh, or the same ground of these truths, then we're forever isolated. And in, and that actually spells out important ramifications um, in a in a society. Um, in a in a in a country in a community, um, if the, the, if you think about the word community, uh, communion, living together, um, having some things in common, but if we don't share some basic things in common, if if we in fact say that is it imp- and it's impossible to share things in common because we can never know the same things in the same way. Um, that it is impossible. It's impossible to live with others, uh, and 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 therefore uh, the so- social ramifications of that sort of denial of the possibility of knowing truth, the denial of being able to have, achieve certitude about the nature of reality, let alone the nature of God, um, has has important negative ramifications and repercussions for the ability to enter into common discourse, uh, the ability to live together. Very much so. So, um, we, we've arrived then at this point historically where it's the Catholic Church which is saying, no, 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 we can know truth. Um, and, and not just that we that the human intellect can know, but reminding us again that we need 
both, not just reason by itself, but we need both faith and reason to know that, that, that they both go together, that the nature of reality is such that we, we accept things, both that we experience ourselves, that we can verify ourselves, but also things um, that we have no personal knowledge of, no personal experience with, um, no personal familiarity with, that we believe things at a human level, but also a theological level with, within a relationship with God. We, th- we believe things because of the tr- trustworthiness of the person who has revealed them to us. Exactly. And so that sense, uh, I think, you know, you could even say then that faith is guarantees reason's power. Uh, to be, reason to have any power, it has to have this idea of, of faith, of belief, of, of trust in this way. Right, and that they go again. Refer, thinking back to that the image that John Paul II presents for us, uh, faith and reason are the two wings on which the human spirit rises. The contemplation of truth, and I appreciate the fact that you ha- you found the text directly because uh, he he does certainly make the the point that ultimately truth God is truth, but he just begins with that basic point that it's through faith and reason that we simply come to know. Truth, that is, that we come to know reality as it is, that we're not trapped within our minds. Um, Father, when we were before the podcast, we, we brought up uh, or, or mentioned at least Descartes. Um, any, anything in particular, I have some thoughts along these regards, but it, what, what, what ramifications or what were the repercussions do you think um, about Descartes, the, the what, 17th century philosopher, um, in this whole discussion of faith and reason? I had a Thomistic philosophy professor who would refer to the effect of uh, and his uh, his philosophy of doubt as the rape and pillage of the the rape and pillage of the universe by the demiurgical cogito. What he's talking about in that is uh, the cogito is the Latin phrase uh, from uh, Descartes' writing, this French philosopher in the 17th century. We would say cogito ergo sum. Right. Uh, the certitude of knowing things. You know what could actually be known. And what he says is, at the end of the day, the only thing I can know, I can't. I'm filled with doubts. He would say, I can doubt whether or not I see a water bottle in front of me. I can doubt whether I'm actually really talking to Dr. Chris Bergwall or this. Things, but the one thing I can't doubt is that I am thinking. Right. Uh, therefore, I think. Therefore, I must exist. Right. Um, and and from that, yeah, all sorts of things um, have have unfolded historically bad things uh once you let that doubt loose and this is where he would talk about the rape and pillage of the universe by the demiurgical powerful demiurge by the powerful cogito because once this idea of doubt gets sown then we start to distrust everything right if you distrust everything you you can't really move in certain sense you become you become paralyzed it's like when uh you don't trust your friends where do you go for any sort of support in the same way that, in that human level of things. So even intellectually, if I can't trust uh, that gravity really does make something fall, then what do I have left? Right. 
trapped in the, within the prison in a sense of our own mind, our own intellect when, when we can't know, uh, when, we, when the only thing we can say we know is that I exist. When um, doubt, uh, corrosive doubt has, has eaten everything else away in terms of those things that we can know. Yeah. yeah, so uh, thanks a lot, Descartes. And, and of course, we have to acknowledge that Descartes was a Catholic, um, and he, he, was, he, was, he wasn't out to destroy the ability of human reason, human reason to know, uh, to know reality, to know truth. But unfortunately, uh, the law of unintended consequences, that is ultimately precisely what happened, as we see today with postmodern philosophy. So, so I think the thing, though, for us, Father, to keep in mind um, – Despite all of these things, from the Catholic perspective, um, faith is reasonable. Um, it is rational. Uh, it does not depend on material evidence. Is, how would you encapsulate that? Well, uh, just I think that that constant reminder that uh, faith is a knowing. You know, faith at its very basic level is that sense of a human knowing in the same way that reason is a style of knowing now of course of faith we get into the whole thing of revelation of god revealing to us and the knowledge coming from god and coming from those sources of faith the scriptures the church uh the testimony of jesus christ things of that sort um and so we have we have that aspect and so to first of all um don't be afraid that uh, if your faith doesn't always have material evidence, you know, if you can't say a prayer and, you know, keep my chalk from falling and breaking, you know, you, uh, that God doesn't have to be proven in that material way that uh, the knowledge of faith, that knowledge of um, uh, the knowledge of testimony, the knowledge of things taken on trust, that knowledge is a certain knowledge, is a sure knowledge. And, and that we, as you said, certain knowledge that, that we can know um, to be true and we can have confidence in and sort of go about our existence rather than um, fretting about each and everything. I mean, if we, if we took Descartes' view to its logical conclusion, as you said, we, we'd be trapped. We couldn't go anywhere. Uh, but in fact, faith and reason do go together. Um, they do work in concert. Um, and therefore, they allow us to thrive, to flourish, um, to be fulfilled um, as men and women, and ultimately as sons and daughters of the Father. So, okay, so that's uh, this week's episode of Pray Rome Companion. Uh, thank you once again for listening. If you have any questions, again, as always, do not hesitate to contact us. You can reach me by email at Chris, uh, cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. That's C B U R G W A L D at sfcatholic, Sioux Falls Catholic, sfcatholic.org. Thank you, God bless, and we'll see you next time.